Continuing with the writings, uh, as we've talked about for a long while, we have been uh, in this kind of poetic interlude. Um, we had from Genesis through Kings, kind of the story of the Jewish people, uh, largely in narrative. And then starting in Isaiah all the way up through last week, we've uh, really seen this kind of, what it, yeah, again, what I would call a poetic interlude. Uh, more prophetic material, psalms, wisdom material, uh, not necessarily advancing the narrative, uh, but more um, prophetic and poetic material dealing with the state of where they were. Um, which was in exile, but also anticipating uh, the renewal or restoration of the kingdom. So uh, it actually is going to pick back up today, that, that narrative, although Daniel has a lot of prophetic uh, language to it. Um, you can see, you, you can understand why the English, the Septuagint and then the English Bibles would move Daniel over with the prophets, but you can also understand um, how Daniel now is actually bringing, picking back up the story, okay? We've had this kind of anticipation of the restoration of the kingdom, uh, which we'll talk about today. Uh, Daniel's kind of picking it back up um, in that void, okay? Um, so, um, real quick, quick housekeeping notes. Um, if you're not on the app, I would encourage you to get on the app because you can get the resources like the notes if you miss a week. Um, I also added an extra um, resource this week um, called uh, Futuristic Premillennialism. Uh, when we go through Daniel, obviously there's going to be a lot of this prophetic type stuff. So this is a pretty basic kind of timeline of the future. If you are a premillennialist, as we are here uh, at this church, and certainly this is a dispensational view of these things. So um, if you're interested in any of that kind of stuff, biblical prophecy is your thing. This is kind of a helpful extra resource. We will talk about that a little bit as we go through. But of course, as we talked about last week in interpretation, um, you really want to be concerned with the main purpose of the text, right? There's... Um, there's a lot of speculation we can do. Um, we can do certain things with systematic and even philosophical theology uh, when it comes to kind of filling in the gaps of what, what the future will be like. Um, and we can get some of that from Daniel, but the, the question is, is that really the purpose of the text of Daniel? Is that the purpose of um, his composition? And uh, that's really not the primary purpose. The primary purpose, as we'll study today, is God's sovereignty. That's really the message of Daniel. Uh, so that's what we'll talk about today. Uh, quick housekeeping note. Um, today is February 25th, um, March 17th. I'm going to be out of town. So uh, we are not going to actually have this equipped class on March 17th. I know that's like kind of right in the middle of spring break and all that, so you may not be here anyway, but um, 
Anyway, uh, so don't show up here in this class. I'll remind you the next couple weeks, but don't show up here uh, in this class, March 17th. Here, of course, you're welcome to join uh, the other one uh, on that Sunday. So we'll we'll meet uh, this week. We're going to do Daniel. Next week we'll do Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll do First Chronicles March 10th, and then March 24th we'll finish up the Hebrew Bible uh, with Second Chronicles. Okay, so we're we're going to get through all the material, but um, that's just that's where we're headed. Okay. Any questions about any of that? Uh, the app, extra resources, signing up for snacks, you can do that on the app as well. Looks like well, we have some leftover cookies today. That's all we got, um, which is okay. But uh, if you want to bring snacks on a future week, you can do that there too. Uh, any questions uh, about any housekeeping notes before we jump in? Uh, anytime we jump into the, the prophetic material like this uh, uh, or Revelation, I always make the joke before we jump into the abyss. <laughs> so uh, any comments or questions before we jump in? Okay, so let's talk about Daniel. Um, the author of Daniel is Daniel himself. Um, why do I believe this? Uh, well, certainly uh, Jewish Talmudic tradition would um, affirm this, but I also think it's in the text itself. Chapter 4, verse 2, and 10, verse 2, both seem to be uh, kind of references to the first person. This is what was happening to me. This is what I saw, kind of stuff. Um, and let's see, Jesus also seems to be, I read my own writing, 24, Matthew 24, verse 15. Um, he seems to be indicating this is what the prophet Daniel says, which I think is, you know, more than just suggesting that the book says it. I think he's kind of suggesting that, that Daniel himself is, is who's um, done this composition. So, uh, so that, that's the author, uh, Daniel himself, uh, written around 530 B.C., shortly after the conquest of Babylon by Persia. <coughs> but describes uh, different events over the course of his life. We are going to have, uh, you know, some time period uh, with some different kings that is covered here, um, but we're talking about, uh, we're no longer talking about, um, at, at, certainly by the end of this, we're not going to be talking about uh, Babylon in charge anymore. We're going to be talking about Persia. So uh, that's how we know that this was at least written after the conquest of Babylon by Persia, which happened in 539 BC. Okay, yeah. Uh, I always, always am struck that Nebuchadnezzar has his chapter in this book. Mm -hmm. I think he wrote that, or uh, which chapter are you referring to? Well, when it gets into, it says, "I Nebuchadnezzar was at home," and he describes his whole thing after the whole event of him going nuts and drinking. Oh, this is in chapter two. I Nebuchadnezzar was at home in my palace center. I had a dream. He goes through the whole thing and then he gets to the end yeah. and he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. You know, yeah. No, I mean, I think he, he would have at least recited this so I could really did come from him, but I think it's part of Daniel's composition. Right, so Daniel think placing it in his composition. Sort of like he told Daniel this, yeah. and Daniel just wrote it all down as sort of this yeah. happened. Yeah, I mean, you see, I mean, Daniel's interpreting it, so he would certainly have known the details of it. Yeah, so yeah, I think it's part of the 
It's part of Daniel's narrative, so he includes it. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of um, part of what we talked about last week, but this kind of distinction between uh, the event and the text, right? Um, the text is the composition. So when we think about authorship, we think about meaning connected to authorial intent. What we're really talking about is you can almost think of these authors making the text, right? The best, I mean, the most explicit example of that is Moses making the Pentateuch, right? Um, he was certainly not around for Genesis that covered long, long periods of time, many, many generations. He's not the one actually jotting this stuff down as it's happening. Yeah, he collects it and then puts it and makes it a part of his composition. So we can say he's the author of it, um, even though he probably wasn't the original one that dictated or wrote it down originally. So he's collecting it, and we can see this kind of in Genesis, this um, um, uh, the Toledot formula. Toledot is the Hebrew word for and the generations of. You've got a... Um, kind of a, a, a series of uh, narrative like Adam and Eve, and then, you know, and the Toledot happens, the generations of. So you can kind of see how this would have been, somebody's writing it, maybe Adam is writing it down, then it gets uh, this, you know, whatever it is, um, this tablet or whatever, it gets passed down and people keep adding. And if they don't have any narrative to add, they're just adding, and this person was the son of this person. So it just keeps getting passed down and passed down and passed down. And then somebody like Abraham has a real story to tell, like a, a real narrative to tell, and writes this down. And so it keeps getting passed down until it gets to Moses. And um, Moses, though, is the author of the Pentateuch because he's using that and probably adding his own commentary about all of these things that are happening. So, uh, But I think... This is a great example. We talked about the Psalms. Many of the Psalms are written by all kinds of different people that span different hundreds of years. Um, but at some point, somebody collected all those into these five books and made the Psalms. Um, so there's a, it, different elements of these things happening throughout the Old Testament. Okay, uh, so let's jump in here. Uh, Daniel 1 through 3. Uh, the author sets the scene by describing Babylon's des desecration, desecration of the temple in 605 BC. Um, so we see some references to that at the end of Second Kings, Jeremiah 25, these things that are happening uh, when Babylon uh, kind of comes in and uh, takes over. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, orders that some young men of Israel be taken back to Babylon and educated for the king's service. So again, picking back up the narrative, here we, here we go. We're back into what's actually happening uh, with the people in exile and then um, how we're going to be restored, how the people will be restored. Um, so taken back to Babylon and educated for the king's service. That's the blank there. Uh, among them are four young men named Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they're assigned Babylonian names. These are the Babylonian names. Uh, Daniel's Babylonian name is Belteshazzar. Yeah. Uh, Daniel and his friends do not eat the king's food in order to obey God's law and stay as healthy as everyone else. So they're being faithful to God here. 
The author says that God gave the four, quote, knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Um, and this is noted in uh, verse 1, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 9, and verse 17. This is, again, these editorial comments. Think about it as a composition, as a text. These comments help you, the reader, understand and not get confused about why they have knowledge and intelligence. Because God gave it to them. So the, the king is impressed, and he values them. One night, Nebuchadnezzar has a troubling dream and demands an interpretation of the dream. Uh, he threatens to kill all his wise men. God reveals the interpretation of the dream to Daniel, and he blesses God. Daniel tells the king the interpretation that God has given him. He claims it is not from him, but from the God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Uh, he tells the king that his dream is about future kingdoms and their rule. Also, an eternal kingdom will be set up by God and will crush all others. Uh, so this, this little scene here provides um, an intro for the rest of the book, a good conceptual framework of what's happening here. Um, these Daniel and his friends, they have, they've been given wisdom by God. They're put in a specific kind of um, uh, place to have a real effect um, and teach, teach not only them there, but in this story, teach um, the, the truth that God wants to give us here. Um, so it says here uh, the king is overwhelmed and Daniel is promoted so um, now he mentions these four kingdoms here uh, the common view and you can write this down if you care about this stuff but um, chapter 2 verse 36 through 38 is the first kingdom that's talking about Babylon and then verse 39 talks about the second and third kingdom common view is the second kingdom is Medo-Persia uh, and then um, the third kingdom is Greece, Alexander the Great. Um, and then the fourth kingdom is Rome. That would be verses 40 through 43. And then 44 through 45 being the eternal kingdom. And uh, we're going to see some more... Um, some more discussion of these different kingdoms here in a little bit and often this um, kind of uh, we're, we're going to see this uh, the Antichrist referenced and things like this he's often associated with the fourth kingdom of uh, Rome so uh, anyway but this is the common view if you're thinking about uh, historical fulfillment of specifically what's being written here in 530 BC um, only Babylon is identified in the text, though, right? Just 36 through 38. That, that's the only way we know for sure from the text itself. Um, the point of this, again, is not to do all this, well, what, this is fulfilled here, this, like, let's, let's pay attention to what Daniel's purpose is. Okay, so the king then makes a large golden idol and sets it up in the province of Babylon. 
At a ceremony to dedicate the idol, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow to the idol, saying they will not worship other gods, even if God does not save them from Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. So they refused to bow to the idol. This is really linked to the dream of chapter 2. Shows us a great example on, of waiting for God's kingdom. Um, can I get a volunteer to read chapter 3, verses 16 through 18? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold you have set up. So a uh, great example here of trusting in God's sovereignty, right? I love the way that that's phrased and the way they speak there. You know, even if he does not, we're still not going to do this. Um, so it's trusting in God. It's, it's knowing that he's in control, uh, not putting your own particular situation above God's purposes. Um, all, all a great example there here in those three verses. So when they are thrown into the furnace, they are delivered by a fourth man who the king says is like a son of the gods. Very interesting phraseology there. Um, <laughs> who is this mysterious man in the furnace? Um, is this a pre-incarnate Christ? Again, this is kind of the same question as who is Melchizedek? Who is the angel of the Lord? Who is the, the man who wrestles with Jacob? Um, a lot of these kind of mysterious kind of instances where um, someone is referred to in a way that you would only think of as a divine being, but um, there's not enough here to say, well, the text is specifically trying to tell us that this is the Messiah, pre-incarnate Messiah. It's just interesting to look back on later. Okay, So I want to be respectful to uh, the textual intention of Daniel here, right? But uh, it's at least interesting to think about. And the Babylonians had their own demigod sure. uh, mythology. Sure, yeah. Um, so that would probably be a very common thing you yeah. initially think of that. Yeah, but he, he identifies it that way because there's actually somebody in the in furnace, the furnace. Yeah. who can save them, which is crazy. Um, okay, so they come out of the fire and the king decrees that no other god could save in this way and forbids the kingdom to speak against God. Okay, four through six, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream which Daniel interprets, telling him that we must, quote, recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it to whomever he wishes. Uh, this is very very similar to Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams in Genesis 41. It's really the same message, right? Can't, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. It's all by God's will. Yeah. Nothing, none of this is happening without God's will. Um, so whomever he wishes, or he will become like a beast of the field. 
the king does not abide by the advice, taking credit for the kingdom himself. Isaiah demonstrated that this arrogance must be punished. The dream is fulfilled and the king is made like a beast, eating grass like cattle do. What a scene that would have been. Uh, he then looks to God and acknowledges God's sovereignty over him, returning to power. Uh, the returning to power is the blank there, the last one in that paragraph. Uh, Belshazzar eventually takes over Babylon and uses the temple's old vessels at a party he throws. Yikes. Uh, during the party, a hand appears and writes some words on a wall. They send for Daniel, and he scolds the king. Okay. Yeah, saying that he knew about Nebuchadnezzar's experiences with God, yet he denies God's sovereignty too. T-O-O. Denies God's sovereignty too. So he's contrasting this kingdom with Nebuchadnezzar's. Just like the dream of chapter 2, he contrasts the greatness of, Babylon, of the Babylonian kingdom in 2, 36-38, with the divided kingdom of 2, 41-43. So he's referencing back, this is an example of intertextuality, kind of referencing back to the same themes of chapter 2. Um, he says that the Medes and Persians will take over the kingdom, and they do. So this is the Medo-Persian Empire, which takes over. Darius the Mede rules over the provinces and is impressed with Daniel. Uh, other officials became, become jealous and convince Darius to pass a law forbidding prayer to anyone but him. Of course, if anyone has raised kids in the last 20 years, you probably think of the VeggieTale. I just have, now I have the VeggieTale song in my head to King Darius. Um, other officials become jealous and convince Darius to pass a law forbidding prayer to anyone but him. Uh, Daniel continues to pray to God. And the officials convince Darius to throw him into a den of lions. The king throws him in, but is convinced that his God will deliver him. Uh, can I get a volunteer to read verse 16, chapter 6? Daniel's conviction here. Yeah. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. King spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Yeah, so we have uh, um, the, this coming here in the story, this idea of, of God's deliverance. Uh, Daniel spends all night in the den without being harmed, saying that an angel had kept the lion's mouths shut. Darius is overjoyed and brings him out. So um, this is this story is very fun, right? I mean, it's like a you know we, tell, we teach the kids this story and all this. He's in the lion's den and the, the lions don't attack him. Um, but again, the, it fits with the overall story and the overall purpose of Daniel. This is about God's sovereignty. God takes care of him in this particular situation. He's sovereign over even this 
situation, these lions, just like he's sovereign over the kingdoms in chapter 2, uh, God is sovereign. So um, think about significance here. Uh, Daniel shows the sovereignty of God on earth, protects his people, and allows earthly rulers to rule. He's in control of all, even our own lives. So just open it up for discussion. Do you trust in God's sovereignty? Is it on your mind when you make ethical decisions as Daniel and his friends did? How do we get their attitude and avoid that of Nebuchadnezzar when it comes to God and his dealings with us? Again, um, it's narrative, right? I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you make decisions in the same way that the boys did or that Daniel did, thinking that God will always deliver you in the same way, right? You have a situation at work, and you say, well, I'm going to trust God here, and I'm going to do what he asks. It may not work out for you as far as, you know, actual earthly blessings the way it did with these guys, right? But the, the point of the story is God's in control. You're gonna, you need to trust in God's purposes. And that's what the boys said, right? They said, we know God will save us, but even if he doesn't, we're going to trust him. We're going to do what we're supposed to do, so... Uh, any thoughts here? Trusting in God's sovereignty. Yeah. Um, that that statement really is um, is a blessing because usually when we pray and we pray for somebody who's sick and then the Lord delivers them and we praise God. But we should really be praising God even if the Lord is not delivering them. Mm. Like the Lord took them through pain and death and then his grace is still there, and his sovereign arm is still there. Yeah. And this is where I struggle, because sometimes when we pray, we are only thankful we, when we get the results we want. Yeah. But yeah. if the results don't come out like, oh, they, now we're praying for somebody who's struggling, it's almost like they're going to amputate her leg, and she is really in, in dire straits, and she could lose her life. It's just difficult to praise him at this time and say, God, we realize your sovereignty, but we should, right? Because he never changed. Hmm. The results change. Our attitudes need to change, I guess. Yeah. But that really helps because even if the Lord does not save us, it doesn't change our view of him. Yeah. That's right. It's really a blessing the way they said it. Yeah. That's right. It's good. And it's something too to just think that we do get surprised at it. It's like but but we should always be that way. Yeah. We should always that should always be our else yeah what well, you know for me I'm not in a position like nobody's jealous of my job or anything like that and, and uh, I think I work really hard to not have to ever get into that position mm -hmm. you know does that make sense I don't you know nobody's gonna get mad at me because they want to do what I want or anything I have <laughs> In the end, it's just it's just what it is. Yeah. You know, you want to go build a bridge and not make it as big as it ought to be, and it falls down. You know, we tell the customer that. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, so you're you're, it's about your priorities in work. Y yes. It's like uh, I've done all I can do. Yeah. You've, you've been told. You know. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think it's just a huge comfort. The, 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 the truth of God's sovereignty is such a comfort in a world that is so messed up, if for lack of a better term, um, that, that when things all look out of control to us, we can be comforted by the fact that it's not none of this is out of control for God. He is sovereign over all things. And so I, I think it, it, it's always a huge comfort when you're just reminded of the sovereignty of God, good times and bad. Yeah, that's right. And there's such an um, example that what we're supposed to be in, what he was talking about in the service today, mm-hmm. all going hand in hand about how that the king saw it and mm-hmm. it was, a, you know, that reflect, they reflected Christ to the king. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're supposed to be doing by our response to what's going on in this world. Mm-hmm. And Oh, to be like that, you know, and to be able to, yeah. you know, not be surprised if God, you know, my, when my prayers are answered, but not be surprised when they're not either, because regardless, like you said, God's in control. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. yeah that's just, good. That's neat. Yeah. I was thinking of another passage related to uh, kind of a more practical application of God's sovereignty to how we, how we behave in the world. In First Peter 3, where it's calling wives to be submissive to their own husbands. I don't know if you've ever noticed how it finishes up and says, um, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Um, and the thing is, it, it can be scary to yeah. submit to a fallen man. Yeah. And the reason we can do it without being frightened is because of God's sovereignty. Because yeah. we're not trusting in the man. Yes. We're trusting in God. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good application. Yeah. What was that reference again? First Peter three, that was verse six. Thank you. Anybody else? Alright, let's keep going. Uh, Daniel seven through nine. Daniel has a dream where he sees four elaborate beasts who struggle with each other. The fourth one trampling the others. He sees the Ancient of Days set up thrones and become ruler with thousands before him and the books were opened. God is called Ancient of Days because he knows no time. Okay, here we go. Buckle up. Um, (laughs) As Daniel looks on, quote, one like a son of man was coming. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Um, uh, might serve him. Where is my, sorry. Um, oh, yeah. Okay, so his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Let's read this. Uh, Could I get a volunteer to read uh, 13 and 14 of chapter 7? Chapter 7, 13 and 14. 13 and 14. I saw in the night of visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom 
one that is shown not as being destroyed. Mm. So we have um, this Son of Man comes, and the Ancient of Days, God gives him the keys, to, gives him the kingdom. So he rules over the kingdom. This is really fascinating, uh, and his kingdom is everlasting. So we now got some. I've got the references there to the Davidic kingdom, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. Um, so this uh, immediately, of course, within the text, within the canon, brings up thoughts of the Messiah. Um, we have, uh, and I can certainly confirm that from the intertestamental period that uh, the Jewish people thought of the Son of Man as being associated with the Messiah. <clears throat> certainly thought of this as a messianic passage. Um, Jesus consistently refers to himself as this son of man. Right? Uh, we, and you got some references there, um, especially in the synoptics there, but, but uh, he, he's consistently referring to himself as the son of man. The son of man must suffer. The son of man must do this. Um, and, and so specifically referring to himself in the third person, but calling himself by this title. Uh, the divine, this divine figure is the Davidic king. Um, so Daniel says that the beasts, so this is back to the beginning, beginning of chapter 7, the beasts are four kings. Uh, so who are the four kings? Um, are they the same from the kingdoms of chapter 2? Maybe. Um, difficult to say. I mean, Probably, that's a decent guess. Uh, so there are four kings, but that those with God will, quote, possess the kingdom forever. So this is back to the fifth kingdom, which is the eternal kingdom. They will suffer at the hands of the fourth kingdom and, per, and a particular ruler from it. So this is often identified with the Antichrist, someone from the fourth kingdom, a ruler from it. Uh, before God takes his dominion away. That's the blank there, dominion away. And establishes the eternal kingdom. Um, so we see here, uh, again, there's a lot, you can do a lot of different speculation about different things. What do we know here? Uh, the ancient, a couple of major things we know here. The ancient of days gives the kingdom to the Son of Man. We already have a lot of. Um, anticipation from the from the prophetic material about the kingdom and the restoration of the kingdom starting in Jeremiah then Ezekiel then the minor prophets everything's about the restoration of the kingdom now we have some specific prophecy about the kingdom and it says the ancient of days gives this kingdom to the son of man and it also says the son of man will give the kingdom to the saints um, so a couple a couple big things there that we're learning uh, okay, so a couple of years later, Daniel has another vision, this one of a male goat who tramples a ram. This also relates to the future, that the ram is the kings, uh, is the kings of Media and Persia, that's uh, from 820, and the goat is Greece, that's 821. So we're talking about the second and the third kingdoms here. Um... A king will rise up who will destroy the holy people and even oppose the prince of princes, but will de be defeated without the help of man. So again, I think we're referring back to this ruler that was just referenced uh, just, just a 
few verses ago. Uh, God knows the future, shares it with Daniel, and also tells him that he, God, will rule the future. Again, let's get back to the main point of this book. God is in control. He's in control of Babylon. He's in control of Persia. He's in control of all these kingdoms from this time, but he's also in control of the future. Daniel is burdened for Israel, confessing its sin before God and asking for restoration on, quote, account of your great compassion. So we've been focused on the destruction of the human kingdoms through these dreams and the interpretation of the dreams. Uh, but now we're focused on the fifth kingdom of chapter 2, verses 44 through 45. So at this point, then, um, he brings up the 70 years prophecy of Jeremiah 25, 11. That's in verse 2 of chapter 9. So, again, uh, you're reading through the canon, you can see um, Jeremiah's prophecy is about the, the, the restoration of the kingdom will come after the destruction, right? There has to be destruction, and then the new kingdom will be built on the rubble of this destruction. That was Jeremiah's message. And he says specifically in 25 verse 11, Jeremiah does, that this will happen after 70 years. So uh, then, of course, we've got more writings and the prophets about the restoration of the kingdom. Ezekiel's all about, you know, God's, Rest, the restoration of the kingdom will come with the presence of God. The minor prophets give a lot of details about the Messiah, connecting the restoration of the kingdom to the coming of the Messiah. So you've got a lot of built-up anticipation in the prophets. Then you've got this uh, Psalms and the wisdom material, which is this waiting period while you wait for the prophet, uh, who is like Moses. You wait for the Messiah. Um, and now we've got, the again, the pick back up of this narrative and um, God is, Daniel's talking with God, and he says, well, what about the 70 years? What about the 70 years prophecy? So that's clearly on his mind at this point. Like, okay, shouldn't we be coming kind of close? Isn't that, or maybe we've been here 50 years or so. Uh, what about the 70 years prophecy? So uh, the next blank there is Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, appears to him, and tells him that, quote, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to make an end of sin. So this is the response to Daniel's prayer about restoration and the future there in uh, chapter 9. Um, his response is, well, it's the full restoration is not going to come in 70 years, it's going to be 70 weeks of years. And he tells him that the that 69 weeks will separate the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. The Messiah, or this Son of Man, will be cut off, and another ruler will rise up. Jesus notes that the Son of Man must suffer. So when there's many, there's references here. There's several references, many, especially in Mark, the connections between Jesus' words about calling himself the Son of Man 
is almost, not almost always, but um, a lot of times he's referring to himself as the son of man in connection with his need to suffer. He will have to suffer. And so this brings us directly back here to Daniel 9 uh, when he does that. Uh, so the evil ruler will destroy Jerusalem and perform sacrilege during the 70th week. Uh, Daniel's prayer will be answered as Jeremiah's prophecy will come true. Um, Jeremiah's prophecy will come true. So that's the return from exile. That's what Jeremiah's prophecy is about. Uh, so Daniel's prayer will be answered as Jeremiah's prophecy will come true. The temple rebuilt and the Messiah will come. However, this will not be the end of struggle for the people uh, in other words, there will be this 70th week. Okay, so I want to finish the text before I, because we could get off into a big rabbit trail on what all this different stuff means. So I'll, I'll get a little bit into that at the end here. Um, 70th week and all this kind of stuff. The main point of the text here is, Son of Man will be cut off. Uh, restoration of the kingdom will not come. The full restoration will not come at the end of the 70th. Uh, 70 years, but 70 weeks of years. Uh, these are the main points of the text at this point. So again, it it does connect back to the overall point of, of, of Daniel, which is God's sovereignty. Like, uh, I'm in charge of not only these kingdoms here, Babylon, Persia, these are only happening because of me. I'm also in charge of all of this in the future. So... Yeah, you're asking about the 70 years. Yeah, there will be a fulfillment of that, but the full restoration will, again, it comes on my timing. It won't be 70 years. It'll be 70 weeks of years. Okay, uh, 10 through 12. Daniel has another vision during the Persian reign. Persian reign. That's the blank there. In this one, someone with human appearance comes to Daniel and tells him about latter days. He tells him that he has been struggling with the princes of Persia until, quote, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help him. Uh, Michael is also uh, is an archangel mentioned in Revelation 12, who fights Satan. Uh, so again, there's a lot of connections here. Um, we don't have time to get into a lot, of them, but that is at least interesting if they mention Michael. Uh, he says that he will go back to fighting them but that Greece is about to come. He again says that Michael helps him stand and fight. Uh, during Darius' reign, Daniel predicts the quarrels of kings after the Persian period. Uh, he describes a king of the north and a king of the south who, quote, will be intent on evil. He says that during this time of turmoil, the people who know their God will be will display strength and take action. <clears throat> One more king will enter countries, overthrow them, and pass through. This is 11, 36 through 45. Uh, this, again, is most likely a reference to the Antichrist. Uh, I believe back in the chapter 70, it's referred to as the little horn. So this is probably, again, a reference to him. Uh, this one more king will enter countries, overthrow them, and pass through. 
even he will succeed uh, in the long run. He will have success. Um, evil will never endure forever. Endure forever is the blank there. But will never end until the eternal kingdom. So you see a lot of kind of, um, I don't know what's the word, resetting expectations for Daniel in his conversations. Right? Like the, there's just, but what about seven years? What about seven years? He wants everything to be solved here. And God's saying, eh, there's going to be a lot more. There's going to be a lot more. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Daniel says that one day there will be a, a great time of distress, and that everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Uh, 12 verse 1 is where I'm at here. This indicates this will be a time of in the distant future, uh, the way this is described. Uh, many who have died will rise to everlasting life, but others to everlasting contempt. Uh, the remnant will endure much struggle until this time, as many will be purged, purified, and refined. So I, I um, we'll get into this in a second. I would connect this with the 70th week that we just were uh, referring back to in, in Daniel 9. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. Daniel knows that when he dies, he will one day rise again at the end of the age. Um, so again, we see, we see a lot of push towards the future. Uh, I do think that there's enough here, especially when we get back to 8, 20, and 21, identifying these, more specifically, these kingdoms. I think second kingdom is Persia, third kingdom is Greece. There's enough here to where, um, so one of the things that happened during the intertestamental period is um, uh, a Greek king named Antiochus, maybe, I'm probably butchering that. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, he, um, he, uh, he did some of the things that seem to be described here uh, as far as desecrating the temple. Um, he did do that. And so uh, the, the people at the time, of course, again, under the occupation of Greece, they're back, their temple has been rebuilt, um, but they're under the occupation of Greece. And he does this, and there's a rebellion against him. And it, there's a war that lasted for many years, and you may have heard of this, the Maccabees. Um, and, and many, for a time, thought that Judas Maccabeus was the Messiah. Um, and I think one of the things we can see from this text, though, is it's, it's actually not a Greek king. It's, and there's some other things we can get into, but we'll go off on a long rabbit trail. I think the main thing here is, is God's message here is this is going to be a, a dis, distant future, right? So that's one of the things we can identify and understand that that was not that. Now, um, I, I will say, uh, you know, Hanukkah is something that um, they have... The Jewish people have celebrated since then. Hanukkah is not in the Bible. That does not mean it's not a really cool thing. And it does not mean that there wasn't uh, a miracle performed by God in order to sustain the people during that time. 
Um, it's not canonical, right? It's not in the text that we have, the actual scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, but um, doesn't mean it's not a cool thing that God did to can continue to preserve the Jewish people until the Messiah could come. So anyway, uh, brief side note there. Um, okay, uh, let's read uh, verse 13, very last verse of the book. Uh, can I get a volunteer to read that verse? Twelve thirteen. Mm-hmm. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Yeah. So I think again, pushing everything forward. Like God's response is pushing everything forward. Look, this is my timing. It's much different than yours. I'm in control of the future. But then for him specifically, he's telling Daniel, carry on until the end. And there is, it seems to be saying there's eternal life uh, here. Um, again, this is, uh, this gets into this whole thing of Pharisees and Sadducees, right? You see this in the time of Jesus, how you've got the Sadducees who are, have elevated the Torah above the rest of the texts. So they don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in this idea of eternal life the same way the Pharisees do. Uh, but this is pretty blatant, um, I think, consistent with the Psalms and some other things describing the idea of eternal life um, for Daniel. Okay, so uh, significance. Um, I think you've got my point here about significance. God knows, both knows and rules the future. It's important to remember this as the world continues down a path of destruction and we come closer to the end. Uh, Do you sometimes get discouraged or concerned with the future of the world. What do Daniel's visions say about God's role in the future, even with the uncertainty that is still to come? Does his sovereignty provide comfort? Any, any thoughts here? Sovereignty of God over the future. Again, this is the real point of the text, right? Some of this other stuff is really fun, you know, connecting it to Revelation. Or what is this? Is this a... And we can see these different things that happen, and we can think, oh, is that a sign of what's talking about a revelation or a Daniel? Is this, are we closer? Yeah, we know we're closer, right? Every day goes by, we get closer and closer. But this is the real point of it, is trusting God's sovereignty, and he's in control. Yeah. I, it's, to say that, you know, you don't get discouraged or concerned about the future, I would if anybody's doing that perfectly, I think they'd already be glorified. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. The, the flesh that we carry around with us, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, you look at things and it, it is, I don't understand how people who are not in Christ can have any sort of sanity when, you know, as Christians, you, there's concern, but then we ultimately know, you know, the Lord is sovereign. He yeah. is in control. Yeah. His will will ultimately be done. Yeah. It's his glory and our good. And so, yeah, it means we have tremendous comfort that the world does not have. And I think that ought to drive us in, in our uh, compassion towards people who otherwise are not very lovely, yeah. as we were and, uh, and still can be. Um, yeah. I just identify with my children when they say, are we there yet? 
And it's like uh, as my pastor in another country would have said, you know, waiting is the hardest part. And they would say, you know, come Lord, I mean how long how much longer? How much longer? But this how much longer? I mean, even even during Revelation, the saints are asking, "How long are you going to put up? How long, yeah. Lord? How long will we go unavenged?" You know. So, right. Yeah. That's right. Well, I kind of wanted to echo what I heard this morning from Rich. Is that the church is different from the 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 the, the world, and we can experience um, the taste of heaven. Uncertainty in the world, but there's there's certainty for the future for the church. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's good. Yeah, I'm not your last sentence. I'm not sure it's uncertainty. It's the fact that it's going to come. Something's going to come at the end. Yeah. We want. We probably want wire diagrams and all kinds of things <laughs> yes. to prove it to us how yes. it's going to happen. So yes. we're uneasy about how it's going to. Yeah. Uh, show itself, I guess, for lack yeah. of a better, a better term. But yeah. God is also in control of that. Yeah. So uh, you can't get away from His sovereignty. He's, he's just all over. That's right. Yeah. Another question. Do you think that's why there's a lot of focus now, a lot of people, whether it's on television or Christians, about prophecy and the future? Yes. Because of things that are going on and how they try to look at things that are going on now in America or whatever, and they say, well, this is this and this is that. Yeah. And there's this kind of, I don't know, emphasis on that or um, real strong interest in it. Yes. Where you really, when you look at it, we really don't know. Yeah. I mean, with everything that's going on, only God really knows. Yeah. But we're trying to figure out the wire diagrams that God has, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, I think it's directly related to um, how bad things get in the world. I mean, early, early uh, 20th century, before World War One, um, prophecy was not really a big thing in the church. Like, especially late 1800s, I mean, it just wasn't. Um, and a lot of that had to do. I mean, there was a lot of post millennials uh, back then. We really believed that we were getting better, like that we were. Uh, the things we're doing in the church actually make the world better, and that brings brings uh, Christ's return um, through through our making it more like the millennium described in Revelation 20. That was actually the belief, um, and then World War One happened, and um, a lot of liberal, yeah, a lot of liberal <laughs> scholars were started, and then of course World War Two, just you know, a few decades later, and so that that that's um, yeah, I think. The things that are happening in the world are directly related to people's interest in prophecy because um, people's interest in prophecy is directly tied to wanting things to be renewed and be changed, for sure. Yeah. But isn't it, hasn't it been the reverse? Because when I was growing up, and I can just remember the Left Behind series and all yeah. of that and the way that they taught, but it was all, this is what I appreciate about this church, it's all taught, and, and this, this is important, it's all hellfire brimstone and, 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 and being left behind or not being, you know, as a child, it was just petrified or scared, but it was all about what was going on around us. Yeah. But being taught the peace that we have, and and, and I, I don't know where I'm going with that, but it's just it's just it's 
always been that way. Yeah. It, it, you know, we can always look at the prophecy. We thought we were told back then. It just, you know, it's on the horizon. You know, the Lord's yeah. coming back. Yeah. You know, and that, I don't know. It just, um, yeah. just, I don't know my point in all of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I think it's been a, a major emphasis, certainly since World War II, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, let me uh, get into this real quick because we only got a couple minutes and then I'll go back to questions because this is relevant to this whole question of prophecy. What should we take from this, from these the Son of Man and the Kingdom prophecies in Daniel, specifically chapter 9, 7 and 9? What should we take from this and connect with the rest of the canon, with the rest of the story? Uh, so again, going back to Jeremiah, he expressed hope in a restoration and a new covenant that will come after the destruction and exile of the people. Again, Jeremiah 25, 11 says, they will return after 70 years. Minor prophets pin this hope on the coming of the Messiah, but push the expectation of this restoration past the return from exile. So we already have this glimpse, especially the second half, uh, the last couple of minor prophets, uh, Zechariah through Malachi. We've got really, a, you know what, the full restoration don't think that that's going to come at the end of the seven years. Seven years is just a return from exile. There's actually full restoration that comes more with the coming of the Messiah. Don't expect that to happen at the exact same time. So we already have that a little bit. Um, as we keep uh, reading on here, we have Psalms introducing someone who sits at the right hand of God, known as the Son of Man. That's Psalm 8017. So then Daniel picks up on all of this that we already have in the canon if we're reading through. Daniel shows us that God is in control of all present kingdoms and a future divine kingdom which will never end. We saw that in Daniel 2. Again, this is the point of the book. God is in control. Uh, the kingdom will be given to the Son of Man, who will be served by all the nations. That's Daniel 7. And then the restoration and establishment of the kingdom will not come at the end of 70 years, but after 70 weeks of years, with the Messiah being cut off after the 69th week. That's Daniel 9. So um, uh, this is, I think, how this connects with the rest of the Old Testament and looking forward. Um, it, it fits this expectation of that the people had an exile of the 70 years, and it resets expectations, right? The full restoration will come with the Messiah, and it will be in the distant future, not sixty, uh, not seventy years, but seventy weeks of years, which is just a week of years is seven years, right? So, um, now, how you read this? So the the little catchphrases, the theological terms. How you read Daniel and how you kind of understand this really connects to the question of where you stand on the whole dispensational versus covenantal <coughs> idea. Uh, or, uh, dispensational versus covenantal idea. Um, we're dispensationalists at this church, so I would, I would read this as a very specific prophecy about um, the the coming of the Messiah, sixty nine weeks of years later, and then a break before the seventieth week, which I would attribute to the tribu tribulation period described in Revelation four uh, through chapter four through chapter nineteen. So I think that is specifically referring to this 70th week or a seven-year period. So uh, anytime you hear somebody say, well, that that seven-year tribulation, if they think a tribulation is seven years, they're connecting Daniel 9 
with Revelation 4 through 19, that means they're dispensationalist. Okay, that's just a little, uh, it's a little thing that's, that can be helpful to kind of identify uh, what these things are. And so dispensationalism really is this idea that there's these major dispensations throughout time, and uh, we're kind of in this, um, um, there, there's a, the 69 weeks of years have been fulfilled. Now we have this kind of great parenthesis where uh, God has kind of turned his attention to the Gentiles, and then the 70th week, which is this seven-year tribulation, uh, that will be when he returns his attention back to the Jews and uh, the fulfillment of the full fulfillment of this prophecy. So um, this is not really, uh, it's not just not really, it's not directly the purpose of the text, but it is interesting at least how uh, you can kind of see the math work out. Um, prophetic years, which referred to in Daniel, referred to in uh, uh, Revelation, it'll talk about like 1,260 days being three and a half years. Well, that's only three and a half years if years are 360 days, not 365, right? So if you take 69 weeks of years, 69 times 7 times 360, then you've got a period. It says that it will, um, the prophecy is actually... Um, it says, uh, after 69 weeks of years from the decree to return and rebuild the city, which is uh, in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. We'll talk about that next week. Um, that decree happened March 14th, 445 BC. So if you take that date and then you add, um, <laughs> then you take... <laughs> who, knows, who knew you were going to have a math lesson today? Uh, then you take uh, 69 times 7 times 360. If you add all that, then you get April 6, 32 AD, which is um, some scholars will attribute this to, if you look in Matthew 21, Christmas. this is that, well, no, it's not Christmas, 30, 32 AD. This would be when Jesus enters Jerusalem and is proclaimed Hosanna in the highest proclaimed as the king. So, again, is this the point of the text? No. Please don't, don't misunderstand me here. This is not the point of Daniel or any of this. It's at least interesting that it wor works out that way and matches that way. Now, I do think there is something significant when we think about biblical prophecy. There is something significant about that moment when Jesus rides in on the colt up towards Jerusalem uh, that we're going to see in the next few weeks. It actually is very, very important, that fulfillment of prophecy. Um, and it does connect back to this. Um, so anyway, um, some of this is, you know, again, speculate. It's more of the question of prophecy and philosophical theology, not necessarily the direct point of, of Daniel. Uh, but I do think it's interesting and uh, if you want to talk more about that, we can talk after. Any any questions, comments about the main purpose of Daniel, uh, and, and of course God's sovereignty in that? Yeah. Just just to beat that dead horse. Didn't, there's a lot of people that say you can back all the way up because the the, the, the Israelis, the, the people of Israel, didn't obey the like the year of jubilees and those you know when the land would go back to the people and the law and there was always those every. Right. years right. or 40 whatever it was and right. it's all just tied together in this big long hoop, 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 hoop. 
you know, you didn't do this for so many years, so you get the land, they took them out of the land, and yeah. the land got to rest for right. those years instead of all individually, and they're all piled up, and yeah. just lots of weird stuff they can tie back into that. Uh, so you're saying, like, as far as putting dates together? Yeah, it's just, well, the, it's like when they got taken away, they said, you know, it's almost like you didn't do the things you were supposed to do, so you're getting taken away for that. And then they go, well, how? what's the punishment? Well, the punishment is you didn't do these things all the way up to this yeah. point, so now we're just going to, you're getting backlogged your punishment for, for your back, I'm, in other words, it's for the land, not necessarily for the people. You were supposed to let it rest. It's sort of like you're supposed to let your fields rest every seventh year, and you're not, you're supposed to return the property to families every, you know, you were supposed to be relieved from your slavery. Yeah. If you so were how, does that, how does that connect? I'm missing the point of how that connects. To well, this. Uh, I've just been told that they say if you count up when people, it's never recorded that they ever did this, uh-huh. and they'll say, oh, you can do this math and yeah, yeah, prove yeah. out that yeah, yeah, yeah. the time that the 490 yeah. years is right. the stuff they were supposed to have right. been doing all right. along, all right. piled up in one. Right. I mean, I, I think the one of the main points I'm trying to make is um, don't rest on my math here, right? It's at least interesting to think about, but it's it's not really the point of the text. No. So, yeah. But there, I always think God's got his thing going, yeah. and he's going to do it. Yeah. Doesn't matter what you, you know, you can not do it now, but he'll do it. He's, yeah. he's got it figured out. Yeah, he does. That's right. Uh, any, any other thoughts here on Daniel? Questions, comments? A little bit over. We're in Daniel. <laughs> okay, we're getting back out of the abyss. Climb back out. Go back, go back to our real lives. Thanks, Mark. Yeah.